Welcome to Voices, the EISA podcast, the space for cutting-edge research in the discipline of international relations and the audible companion to EISA, the European International Studies Association. This podcast sets the stage for deeper insights into award-winning papers, books and theses, as much as it provides a room for the critical engagement with key concepts in political and sociological thought. Voices, the EISA podcast. Feeds your reading lists, makes cutting-edge IR research audible. My name is Judith Koch. I'm an IR PhD student at the University of Sussex and the production manager of this podcast. Please welcome our today's host, Catherine Cherritt, Senior Lecturer in Global Politics at the University of Westminster and EISA board member, who today is in conversation with Terry Göttlich, Lecturer in International Security at the University of Reading and winner of the EISA's Best Dissertation Award 2021. Uh, thank you, Carrie, for joining us. And I had the great pleasure of reading Carrie's thesis entitled Frontiers to Borders, the Origins and Consequences of Linear Borders in International Politics. Um, and along with other committee members, uh, we enjoyed reading the piece um, for its rich historical and international data that Carrie uses to challenge some paradigm thinking um, about the border in IR. Um, namely, that challenges the idea that borders are ter a territorial enactment of sovereignty. And he states instead that, by contrast, this thesis views the linearization of borders as a process relatively autonomous to the sovereign territorial state. And he focuses instead squarely on precise linearity as a specific kind of territoriality fashioned out of or imposed on top of other kinds of territoriality. So thanks for joining us today, Carrie. And I guess the first question is, um, when or how did you become interested in studying borders or realize that it was specifically the linearization of borders that interested you? Yeah, um, thanks for this opportunity. Um, I think um, the, the question of how I became interested in borders uh, has a lot to do with, with how I became interested in uh, history and historical IR in particular. Um, It was, I guess, uh, you know, kind of a, a moment in, in grad school where I was trying to kind of figure out uh, what kind of IR theorist I was and to kind of, um, you know, find out a way of refuting realism and, and all of this sort of stuff. And, um, and I had a kind of light bulb moment when I, when I met, uh, well, well when, I, when I found historical IR, it kind of, um, it kind of brought all the debates that I was reading about to life in a new way. Um, and um, so I guess I, 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 the reason I got interested in borders was because that seemed to be kind of a key marker of how the, mod, you know, a marker of the difference between the modern international system and uh, whatever else uh, that came before. Um, but I also kind of sensed that there was something, something kind of not, quite clearly defined in the literature or some, there were some questions that were kind of, um, still to be asked. Um, and I guess also at the same time, this was, this was back in sort of 2014, um, or so. And, uh, 
that was around the time that ISIS was was making a big impact on the news. And so there's all this stuff about uh, the Sykes-Picot Agreement of 1916 and how, you know, colonial borders kind of uh, set the stage for, for um, you know, more or less everything. You know, there was this kind of reductive, simplistic explanation of how basically these colonial agreements um, basically determined everything that happened in the Middle East afterwards. And, and it was a similar narrative to... Uh, narratives about African colonial borders um, that that had existed before that. So I guess um, those were two kind of, um, you know, there was a kind of uh, scholarly, you know, literature reason to be interested. And and then there was a kind of, uh, there's a sort of moment in the news uh, that I I felt uh, I could make an intervention into. Great. So just building on what you've said, and those specific examples. How do you think your focus specifically on the linearization of borders um, differs to other conceptualizations of borders in IR? And you can talk about the examples you, you gave if you wish or others. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the, the biggest difference, and um, I guess I've, I've sort of spelled this out a little bit more clearly uh, in an article that I wrote in the, in the APSR, uh, more clearly than I did in the thesis, I think. Um, the, the key difference is to, to separate borders from sovereignty a little bit or territory from sovereignty. Um, because I think in a lot of the historical IR literature, they, they've been kind of, um, and you know, all that literature that, that really got me interested in this, uh, in the first place, uh, kind of blurs sovereignty and territory a little bit, sovereignty being a specific kind of authority structure, and territory being a kind of geographical concept, a way, you know, a, a way in which um, specifically authority is, is kind of uh, located in space. Um, and basically, if, if you kind of confuse the two too much, then you miss uh, the fact that a lot, of, uh, a lot of the transition to kind of modern territoriality, if we think of that as kind of linear, fixed, precise borders, you miss that a lot of that is actually going on in, in colonies rather than, than sovereign states. Um, so that's, that's the biggest uh, difference that I, would, that I would say. Okay. So the linearization as a process um, just kind of emerges through um, colonial practices. And I mean, as someone that you mentioned particularly of, of interest in your work is uh, Thomas Holditch, um, being a, a geographer, a colonial geographer. Um, and so I, I guess, you know, the story that you perhaps are trying to tell through Thomas Holditch is the importance of, of key individuals, I guess, um, to how borders or the linearization of borders. And I think in the, in the thesis, you call it the, the politics of expertise, right? So I guess particular um, individuals, in this case geographers, but perhaps other um, scientists um, being important um, to that, you know, the relationship between colonialism and um, the linearization of the border. So I guess, can you tell us a bit more what, you know, about Thomas Oldich or, you know, why was he of interest to the project? Um, yeah, sure. I mean, um, I find Thomas Holditch to be a really interesting um, 
way of under of kind of understanding what's distinctive about modern territoriality. Um, I mean, I don't think he he didn't kind of personally invent it in any sense, um, or you know, I you know, it's it's not that it, it wouldn't you know the transition to linear borders would have happened without him. But I think what makes him interesting is he kind of expresses uh, in sort of clear language what the you know that that particular perspective uh that it, that imposes linear borders on the rest of the world um i mean so, so i i mean i think there there there's sort of two things um that he sort of contributed to a, an emerging sort of science of of borders uh and and he was you know along with sort of ellen semple and lord curzon um you know he kind of he was one of the major figures in starting uh, what we call boundary studies. Um, so, so one of, one of his big things was that he he thought uh, a lot of territorial agreements were not precise enough. Basically, they used a lot of very imprecise language, like um, at the foot of the hills. And he was a surveyor. He was a superintendent of frontier surveys in British India for a long time. And so, as a surveyor, he thought that was really really annoying. Um, and you can you can see how it's personally annoying to him, but he also thought it was politically dangerous. And he thought that um, in in a kind of surprisingly reductive way, he thought that a lot of Britain's frontier problems had to do with just badly specified language. Um, so, you know, what is the foot of the hills? Is it kind of, you know, the end of the big slope or is it, you know, the foothills or, you know, does it go all, you know, sometimes you go out all the way out to a river or something um, or, you know, distinguishing the the highest chain of the mountains from the watershed boundary um you know making these kinds of distinctions um which were kind of only obvious to geographers and and surveyors making them accessible to politicians so kind of training the politicians in geography so that they could make clear uh borders um another thing that he that he went on about a little bit more later in his career was was this idea of barrier boundaries mm. so he thought that mountains particular i mean and it, this was particularly taken i think from from the himalayas as a as the kind of sort of god-given boundary of british india um and then you know you can see i i do this a little bit in the thesis and i'm developing that more um how that idea, along with, you know, um, you know, in conversation with people like Ellen Semple um, and Lord Curzon, how that idea of mountain boundaries, barrier boundaries, um, becomes very important for the Paris Peace Conference. So in a way, it gets kind of read back onto Europe um, in a way that's kind of surprising, maybe considering a lot of people tend to assume that the Paris Peace Conference was about nationalities and dividing up people on national and racial basis, uh, which is not wrong, um, but um, mountain boundaries were valued to a surprising extent. And I think that has a lot to do with people like Thomas Holditch. Okay. I mean, thank you very much, Carrie, for that answer. I do remember reading that part in the thesis, the sort of confusion with the mountain border, right? Because, you know, of, of peaks and passes and crevices, et cetera, it's really hard to, you know, identify that that clear line, right? Um, and there there seems to be almost this, what you've described is this, I, I don't want to use the word obsession, but maybe this politics of expertise creates a particular concern with with the line. Um. So I guess 
I have a couple of, of questions on that. I mean, the first is, is, is this a particular masculine or man story um, in the sense of are most of the geographers that you've looked at men is a lot of the literature that you've drawn on um, uh, from people sort of cis identifying men. Um, but, you know, is there a sense of mastery, do you think, in terms of, I guess, in seeing, I mean, we'll come back to the, pros, the, 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 the idea of articulation, but I think this relationship between colonialism, mastery and, and masculinity, I mean, does it feature, are there women in the thesis or women in the project? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, it's it's definitely true that um, that surveying is a male dominated enterprise at all these times. Um, I mean, actually, especially surveying, you know, you do get you do get some women who are kind of adventurers, uh, it, it, you know, adventuring throughout sort of colonial spaces. Um, you know, people like Gertrude Bell come to mind, uh, who, who could in, in certain ways be actually very influential. Mm. Um, surveying as far as I've seen is really, uh, a male only enterprise, um, un- until, you know, in, in the United States, you get some women surveyors kind of late, late 19th century, early 20th century. Um, so, I mean, a lot of the stuff that I look at in the thesis is kind of early, like colonial history of, you know, 13 colonies at, at that, at that time, it, it, as far as I can see, it was, it was a male only enterprise. Um, I mean, the, the most important woman in the thesis is Ellen Semple. Um, and, and Ellen Semple, um, was another one of these figures that kind of, uh, started, started boundary studies, uh, in a sense. And she, her concern was less the concerns of a surveyor per se, like Thomas Holditch. And she was more of a kind of, uh, a more of a typical academic geographer and she was so she she had learned a lot from Friedrich Ratzel um you know so this this is the kind of school that that ends up um being you know caricatured in some ways as as environmental determinism i mean and and that's accurate in some ways um and so so she also had a concern with with mountain boundaries she um she kind she was from I think she was from Appalachia, um, but she certainly did uh, a lot of research on uh, the Appalachian mountains and and the kind of uh, influences on culture uh, of of mountains specific. So she had a kind of interest in mountains uh, from that perspective, and she and she thought of mountains as a kind of um, a sort of barrier that kind of. Um, that sort of contains the expansion of, of races. I mean, and remember all of this stuff is, is in various ways explicitly racist. Um, and so mountains kind of contain uh, nations or races in, in certain ways that allows them to uh, develop in particular ways, um, you know, to, to use, to use land resources efficiently uh, and and so there's a kind of association with civilization there, um, and so you know there were so she was coming at this from a different perspective from Holditch, but there was they they both had this kind of interest in mountain boundaries, um, and so that's you know when you uh, I mean if the interest is is with uh, the politics of expertise, I would say that was one of the main ways in which these kinds of academic uh, experts made an impact on the Paris Peace Conference. 
Mm. Um, whereas, um, you know, the kind of popular understanding of Wilsonianism mm. at the time, uh, and, and still is, I think, the, the popular understanding of what Wilson was going for was, you know, to, to create racial units. Um, to a surprising extent, these, these academic uh, or expert uh, geographers um, tried, to, tried to figure out how mountain boundaries could be used um, or, or kept from, from previous boundaries, particularly um, one, one boundary that Ellen Semple had, you know, worked on the, uh, she didn't, she didn't get invited to the Paris Peace Conference as a woman, but she did work on, she did work with the, the other U.S. academics um, as, as part of the, the U.S. diplomatic efforts. Um, uh, she, she, she wrote, you know, a paper on the uh, Austria-Italy boundary and how, you know, even though going with the, the top of the mountains may not be, you know, racially the most sort of uh, exact dividing line, it, you know, it would offer, you know, strategic advantages. And that was kind of a, a line that was quite common throughout these, mm. these geographic experts. Yeah. I mean, that that's quite important um, in, in terms of it seems, I mean, I don't think it would tell a whole, a whole story, but it seems quite interesting to see how the rationalization of, of the border sort of gives this, you know, the idea of wanting to divide races, a kind of, you know, scientific name, right? Like, you know, you can, you know, do these surveys um, to kind of mask what might be a, a racialization of um, you know, trying to divide communities, as you say. Um, I mean, just just one more question on the politics of expertise before we move on. Um, just for for students of international relations, um, if you might be able to explain what this means for where IR happens, um, in the sense of, you know, the way in which experts were either involved uh, in the nineteen nineteen peace talks or even now, right, where, where would we look to to understand where the politics of expertise are happening, particularly around the border? Yeah, I don't, I don't know if I have anything really revolutionary to say about this. Um, I mean, in some ways, I think what I was looking, what I am looking at in, in the Paris Peace Conference is a little bit historically specific. Mm. So I don't know if it, I don't know if it says, um, anything general about, uh, about expertise. Um, I think mostly my concern was to show how modern territoriality itself is bound up with a certain kind of expertise and that modern territoriality as we know it really can't exist without expertise. Um, and that's something that that's easily taken for granted. Um, because, you know, because as a result of all of these historical processes, we've gotten used to be, you know, we've gotten so used to being able to draw lines on maps and assuming that, you know, if, you know, if, if we're politicians and we can draw a line on a map, you know, like, um, sort of like, you know, there's this apocryphal thing where, where Winston Churchill says, oh, you know, one one Sunday afternoon, I created Jordan with a stroke of a pen. Um, 
you know, there's a, you know, it's it's sort of blustery and funny, but there's a whole politics of expertise behind just being able to say that and being able to make sense of that statement. Mm. Um, Because, you know, you, you just made the the line with a pen, you know, in the Sunday afternoon, but then in order to actually implement that line, all these kind of experts have to go into, you know, snap into place with their, um, you know, with with all of their surveying instruments and and whatnot, um, and and that whole all of that stuff gets forgotten about, and it's all it's all fundamental really to mm. to what modern territoriality is. Mm. I don't know if that answered the question, but <laughs> no, I mean it does it does hundred percent, and it also I think draws attention to you know expanding our understanding. Um, this question of you know where does IR happen. I think looking to some of these scientific communities, right, and and looking at how they might, you know, provide particular mechanisms for what is a sort of colonial imagination of whoever is in power at the time, um, or a racialized understanding of politics, and and who's you know who's arriving to kind of facilitate that, and you know, so that I think that cooperation between what might be a scientific community um, and the state at any you know point in time. Yeah, I mean, and. Um... Like this is uh, very, very much integral to Thomas Holditch's project. And, you know, this is a project that gets continued uh, in the early 20th century is kind of creating that link between experts and politicians uh, when it comes to borders, Um, you know, making, uh, clarifying the kind of expertise that's required to make modern borders that are clear, precise, fixed. And making that ex- making that expertise available um, to politicians, whether that's whether that's telling them directly what they should and shouldn't do, or giving them the expert advisors who who can help them with the process. Um, and so, you know, over the course of the sort of early twentieth century, you go from uh, a Holditch type who says, you know, mountain borders are the best because they act as, you know, good fences and I'm, a, I'm an expert in this and everyone treats me as an expert and I'm great. So you should listen to me and you should use mountain borders. You go from that, you know, after the end of World War One, and ge- geographic determinism gets de- discredited and, and, and so you can no longer really make those kinds of statements um, because, you know, geographers no longer have the kind of confidence to say these are the geographical determinants of politics. You can't really say that anymore. Um, so the the area that they have to maneuver gets so, sort of like narrowed uh, gradually down to the point where they can only say, you know, this is what a clear way of describing the line is. And that, you know, they can't say this is a good border or not. That's for the politicians now to decide. Um, so this is a relationship that evolves over time. Hmm. Yeah, thank, thanks, Carrie. And I, I guess now maybe shifting slightly to what are the the sort of reasons or outcomes from this kind of what you might call the standardization of the line, right? How the, this idea of, you know, so I just, your your work somewhat reminded me of Timothy, Timothy Mitchell's work um, and when he's sort of exploring the development or shifts um, in Kartov cartographic practices in post-colonial Egypt. And he kind of explains how, you know, prior to colonial administration, there was the administration of, of, you know, land in Egypt, some of the oldest in the world. And he says, you know, 
prior to that, the land was sort of beholden to an individual, but without maps, the lands couldn't be compared to each other. So with the development of, of plotting and with maps, um, he concludes that you can therefore, you know, identify the difference between different plots of land, principally for tax purposes, right? So you can then identify, you know, you can tax that land properly because you can identify how they relate to each other. But I guess I bring that up, um, you know, for, for two reasons. You know, in your opinion from your work, do you think that the, the linearization of, of borders creates a false sense of standardization between borders, right? That they can then be looked at at maps and they're considered the same. And a second point to that is, you know, in your journey of exploring the development of borders, um, did you see any different ways of demarcating, you know, space, the space or the spatialization of territory that you found particularly fascinating or interesting that you that you wanted to share? You know, what was lost, I suppose, with the creation of, of the line? Um, that's an interesting question, whether or not it creates a false kind of standardization. Um, I mean, it, well, it certainly does create a, a kind of standardization. And um, I think it ter- makes territories comparable to each other uh, in a way that, that wouldn't be obvious otherwise. Um, so that's interesting that Timothy Mitchell was saying that about sort of properties. Now, I guess it's a different question. To what extent was that, was it kind of accurate for people to think that, you know, in that way? I don't know if I have a general answer to that question. I, I, I guess all I can say is it, it obscured some things, and it, but it was also useful uh, for colonialism, for its purposes. So, you know, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't completely wrong. I think colonial um, surveyors often could kind of exaggerate the power of imperialism, um, but it, it, at the same time, it wasn't completely wrong mm. um, that, you know, there are, there are illusions, but they're sort of use, illusions that are useful for certain things. I mean, I think that maybe the one, one illusion that I think it does create that, that is maybe unhelpful is this idea, and, and I, I, I think this goes back to some of the things that I was saying before, is, is this idea that you can draw a line on a map and kind of make it so just by drawing the line. Um, you know, that you can draw, you can, this idea that you can partition Africa or partition the Middle East, uh, simply by drawing lines. And then just because you drew the lines, then it makes it so, um, I think that is an illusion that people had at the time. And it's an illusion that people have now in referring to, you know, things, um, you know, it's one of the reasons I think why it's been so difficult for historians to kind of break down these myths about what actually happened, for example, at the Berlin conference, the, you know, the Berlin West Africa conference, um, you know, they didn't actually sit down and draw lines on maps. That was a process that happened over years. You know, it was, you could say maybe it was a result of the conference in some way. Um, but, you know, we have this image of, you know, colonial conspiracies um, in a kind of simplistic way. Um, and there are ways in which this image kind of suits it might suit anti-colonial purposes historically in, in some ways, but it's also uh, in some ways inaccurate. So I guess that's one illusion that it that it creates. Um, the other question was about sort of what does what do linear borders sort of um, what do they obscure or what do they make no longer possible? 
I don't know if you meant it like that, but the way that I asked it again was kind of two different questions that I think are that that are sort of different. Um, I mean, I didn't look a whole lot at the sort of different boundary concepts that were being replaced. Um, I, I sort of I look at them a little bit only to show that they exist, uh, to acknowledge that there were many of them, and you know I think um, that that wasn't really the goal. I think if if people who are interested in that sort of thing should start with Tong Chai Winnichakul's uh, really great book called Siam Mapped. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, where he talks about in, in, in really kind of, you know, fine grained historical detail, but also he has a, you know, a, a theoretical awareness, which is really useful. Um, the differences between kind of pre-colonial Siamese conceptions of space versus colonial conceptions of space and how they kind of interacted. So, so that, I mean, that's a really good account if you're interested in that. And one of the things that's so interesting is that he, he actually does say, he does call it territory, um, what was there before colonialism. He thinks territory is a useful word. Um, he does, he's not one of those people who will try to say that Europeans invented territory and that if we call some if we call something else territory, then that's imposing a European idea on them. Um, he, he doesn't say that. Um, but it's a different kind of boundary where, you know, for example, like it only exists sort of on pathways, for example. You know, so it's not really a continuous line. It just, it you encounter the boundary if you're taking a path between one sort of country, for lack of a better word, to another. Um, you know, and there might be a line that just crosses the path, but the line doesn't extend any further than that. And there's a lot of kind of what he calls empty space between between the boundary of one uh, polity and another. Um, you know, this 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 does bring us to the last part. Um, I just wanted to say briefly on this the, the comment of you know the the target of of anti colonial pressure. I mean, I guess also what you highlight is that. Um, you know, you can identify particular political leaders who take action, you know, um, uh, either at the Berlin Conference or in other settings. But actually, you point out that they draw on much, you know, longer histories of of science and race making, longer histories of, you know, the survey geographer. And, you know, so I think it does, you know, point, um, you know, to larger structures that I think, you know, um, definitely anti-colonial abolitionists thought, you know, look, look at, right, in, in how they approach these topics. And I guess, you know, um, you know, so so coming to 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 the last set of of questions, I guess, just just before I kind of want to offer this quote from Weber, because I think it actually kind of tells us, you know, some of the the thoughts here. So, you know, you and this is that you cite in the thesis, the the kind of thinking that we can perhaps um, identify here. So only the most precise and totalizing forms of knowledge are to be privileged. Conversely, the process of disenchantment entailed the rejection of traditional and mystical interpretations of nature, history, and society. Um, there's no question here. That was just a, a comment to, you know. Um, so I guess we almost end where we should have begun, perhaps, which is, you know, the the thesis um, looks at how the linearization of borders um, appears rational, but they are also the product of historical articulations with other rationalities. And you say particularly capitalism and civilization. So can you first explain um, Stuart Hall's 
concept of articulation that you draw upon in the work? And why did you turn um, to this theoretical framework um, in particular? And then the second question here is, can you perhaps give an idea of how the thesis treats the articulation of survey rationalization and civilization? Just to give an idea to the, the listeners what the thesis does um, mm-hmm. with those two concepts. Um, so the way that I use articulation, I mean, I'm not, it, it might be a little grandiose to call this a framework. Okay. <laughs> um, I think articulate at least the way that I used it in the thesis, um, articulation is a useful way of kind of describing to putting into words when you have two things that go together historically, but are not logically necessarily dependent on each other by their own very natures. So um, there, there, there are two things, you know, and, and this is deliberately vague, <laughs> they could be discourses or practices or whatever, um, that, that sort of go together, that, that have come to go together um, his, because of historical processes. And so it's useful for thinking about how things can be related to one another, but yet also distinct. And the reason that I at first found this a useful concept um, was when I was uh, looking at the, the enclosure process uh, in England, which kind of sets up the the sort of early American colonial history part of this, and and how property boundaries uh, are, are important in certain ways, I found it useful in trying to figure out what the relationship was between the linearization of property boundaries, which is something that happened before the linearization of territorial colonial boundaries. Um, the relationship between that and the kind of larger social forces that were kind of seeming to cause it, namely uh, agrarian capitalism. Mm. Um, And I thought to myself, well, why would a landowner in early modern England think that linearizing the boundaries of their properties would cause the value of the property to go up? Because you could easily go the other way. Um, you could easily think, well, if I, and, and a lot of aristocrats in continental Europe did think this way, they tried to avoid surveys because if you survey it, you could find out it's actually smaller um, than you thought it was. Or um, I guess in the continental context, you could, you know, you could, be, the reason they, they tried to avoid surveys because, um, you know, you could be charged a higher, you know, you could be charged taxes or, you know, it all had to do with taxes. But um so why would why would landowners think that this would increase the value of their property? So it occurred to me that this was not something that was, um, you know, the result of some like extra historical, you know, super rational thinking going on. That it was a, a highly local and particular uh, kind of thought process that was going on in which the social forces behind agrarian capitalism were were being historically articulated with linearization along, you know, along with, you know, the scientific revolution and all kinds of other things going on. Mm. Um, and then it all, and then it also occurred to me that this could be a, a useful way of, of setting up the whole thing that, um, you know, other things besides capitalism might be articulated with, um, with survey rationality. Great. 
And and did you want to comment briefly on civilization and yeah, the articulation of survey rationalization and, and civilization? Yeah. So, I mean, in the thesis, um, the argument was that um, the reason that linear borders were imposed in Africa was, I mean, following the basically the sort of the breakdown of an earlier system in which colonialists would or imperial officials would kind of negotiate treaties with local polities um, kind of in ad hoc terms. Um, and these treaties were, you know, seen as kind of semi-legal requirements for imposing authority. Um, that system broke down uh, for a number of reasons, but I mean, w- one of them was just because the legal status of these treaties became so questionable. You know, you had these kind of stereotypical images uh, being put around that. You know, these treaties were completely meaningless because, you know, they just um, they just bribed people with, you know, and there were all kinds of stereotypical images of, of bribing locals with with alcohol or guns or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the, the legal status of these treaties just became so ambiguous that I think um, there needed to be a different a, a different system. Mm-hmm. And um, at that point in time that you know no new system could be articulated without you know along with this idea of the civilizing mission without um an idea of some kind of uh technological superiority which is kind of inherent in in linear borders as as we were saying earlier that you know you've got to get the you know the big guns out not (laughs) figuratively the big guns the, the big scientific guns you know the um the triangulation and all this so uh, that's in a nutshell. <laughs> no, I know, and I think that brings us back to what you know we were saying. You know what you were saying before, right? About relying on this expertise, um, right, to to create this sort of this, yeah, the civilizing mission, as it were, at that time. So, um, anything you're working on now that relates to the thesis you want to share? I mean, well, there's. You know the APSR article that I mentioned already that that recently came out. But I mean, I am I'm I'm working this into a book right now, and okay. so <laughs> so um, so yeah, look out for that. <laughs> yeah, for sure, Carrie. Oh, we'll do. I mean, it was it. You know, it was really really interesting and well well researched. So thank you so much for for sharing your comments today. That was great. yeah. Thanks so much for this conversation, and yeah, it's been great. Okay, bye. Thank you for listening. Please find all information on today's interview guests and hosts in the show notes. Voices, the EISA podcast, is available on all established podcast platforms. If you liked it, subscribe now. Voices, the EISA podcast. Feeds your reading lists, makes cutting-edge IR research audible.